The next two weeks, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we're going to be leaving our studies in the book of Acts and look at uh, how in the Gospels the triumphal entry of Jesus is recorded. Uh, I'm going to do that from Mark and obviously next Sunday we'll be looking at the resurrection. We are just going to have a reading from Mark 11 and it's read again by David Suchet and uh, just uh, sit back and listen. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. When you read the Gospel of Mark, I think you will notice that Mark is extraordinarily restrained in the way that he seeks to communicate the uniqueness of Jesus to his readers. There are no extravagant claims on the lips of Jesus. Indeed, it's the very opposite. For instance, when Jesus heals, he tells people to keep quiet about it. When the disciples confess Jesus as Christ, he tells them, don't tell anyone. When Jesus teaches the crowd, he does so in parables, which are sometimes deliberately obscure. What we do discover in Mark's Gospel is that Jesus has a very clear idea of who he was, who he is, and what he had come to do, but he did not trumpet those ideas in an exhibitionist way. 
He communicated who he was and what he had come to do to people in a much more subtle way. It's only from Mark 11 that Jesus begins to become clearer and speak more plainly about his identity and mission. But even here in chapter 11, there is, as one writer has put it, a strange ambiguity, as if Jesus wants to make a riddle of himself, a riddle for us to solve. And this riddle is contained in Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, some older commentators on this story argue that the instruction to the disciples to go to the village, etc., is evidence of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. But frankly, I think there is an alternative explanation. And that is that Jesus had made a prior arrangement with the owner of the animal. It seems to me far more likely that Jesus had arranged with the owner that one of these days, one of my disciples will come asking for this animal, saying, the Lord needs it. And such a prior arrangement makes sense because I think Jesus planned to enter Jerusalem in this way and he planned it with great care. I think he had planned it for some time and had the timing of his arrival planned just before Passover. However, far more significant than the mystery surrounding the acquisition of the donkey is the, uh, the, the choice of a donkey as the mount for his arrival in Jerusalem. After all, up to this point, Jesus had walked everywhere. So why suddenly change now? And it's such an unlikely mount, particularly if you are wanting to make an impression upon people. Now, to make an impression, it should have been a large white horse, often used by victorious generals. So, why on earth did Jesus go to all the trouble in planning to use this donkey and plan to use it in this extraordinary way? What is Jesus up to? That is what I mean when I say the riddle of the donkey. And the clue to solving this riddle lies in the Old Testament. There is a prophetic book of the Old Testament called Zechariah. Now, today, we don't study that book very much. But it was an immensely popular book in Jesus' day. For Zechariah is a book full of messianic hope. Is written about 400 years before Jesus came at the time of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews had been in exile, then they returned to the land, and then they rebuilt the temple. And using sometimes weird imagery and picture language, Zechariah expresses the expectation of a future day when God himself will arrive at the temple and make it the centre of his worldwide kingdom. Just look with me for a few moments at chapter 14 of Zechariah. 
Verses 1 and 2 strike a note of pessimism. But then, in verse 3, the note of messianic hope begins. God will come with angelic forces, and amidst geological turmoil, God will deliver Jerusalem from pagan domination. And if you go through that chapter, and please do read it, notice several things that which um, signal God's coming. Geological turmoil, the Mount of Olives is split in two. A new waterway created linking the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. In other words, there's a cosmic upheaval being described. And notice also the kind of victory which will result. Verse 9, the victory embracing all the nations. And the public evidence of this reign will be that Gentiles will come up to Jerusalem to honour the Lord. And in verse 16, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And notice also in uh, verses 20 and 21 that the temple itself will be purged, cleansed from all that is profane and unworthy of God. By the word, just in passing, um, by the way, just in passing, the word Canaanite in verse 21 is also a, a word used to describe those involved in trade and commerce. In other words, merchants. It's not a reference to a racial class, but to merchants. Now, this chapter 14 and these particular features of the prophecy that are contained there are very important as we study Mark 11. What I want you to realize is that the Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting at any time the arrival of this day of the Lord that Zechariah talks about. A day when God's Messiah, the Christ, representing God himself, would appear and with supernatural power destroy the pagan domination of the Roman Empire which ruled Israel at that time. And the expectation was the Messiah would set up a worldwide empire centred around Jerusalem. And that's the significance of the word Hosanna in Mark 11, verses 8 to 10. The followers of Jesus sense that Jesus is approaching some climax in his ministry. He's arriving at Jerusalem and that's the place where it's all going to happen, according to Zechariah 14. Where is he arriving from? Verse 1 says, from the Mount of Olives. What's the message that he's giving in getting the donkey? The Lord has need of him. And in their excitement, the followers of Jesus begin to sing one of the messianic psalms of the Old Testament that we know they sang usually at the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's quite clear that at least some of the followers of Jesus were expecting an imminent, soon-to-be fulfillment of Zechariah 14. They were full of expectation for a supernatural military intervention 
a kingdom is going to be established. Now, that expectation had always been around in Jesus' ministry. And that's why Jesus avoided extravagant public claims about being the Messiah. The crowds wanted a military Messiah, but Jesus would not be a military Messiah. Jesus did believe that he was that king that they expected. He was the one of whom the prophets spoke, but he was not the kind of king they expected. And in this sense, Jesus, I think, had a, an awkward task in fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, in communicating his, messian, his messianic identity, but at the same time he must avoid inflaming the masses to rebel and to revolt. And there we have the solution to the riddle of the donkey. Turn back with me to Zechariah, this time to chapter 9, and particularly verses 9 and 10, where it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now here in chapter 9, Zechariah is predicting a different kind of royal entry to Jerusalem. This entry is characterized not by war, but by peace, verse 10. The king rides not on a war horse, but on a donkey. The salvation he brings will not be won by violence, but by righteousness and gentleness. The pagan nations of the world will not be destroyed, but integrated into a global harmony. Now, it's a very different picture, isn't it, to Zechariah 14. And let me tell you, the rabbis of Jesus' day were very aware of the, the contradiction between these two styles of messianic arrival, one in Zechariah 9 and the other in Zechariah 14. And the obvious solution to this apparent contradiction was one that none of the rabbis anticipated. The solution was two comings. The Messiah would come twice. Once quietly as a man of peace, and then in power and glory as a king of judgment, judgment upon the world. Jesus realized that this was God's plan, a two-stage structure. And that's how Jesus saw things. He had come, but also, he also knew he would come again. And in between those two comings, for him personally, there stood a great crisis. The verses between Zechariah chapter 9 and chapter 14 held for Jesus all kinds of hints 
about what must happen between that first coming, seated on a donkey, and that second coming in glory and judgment. For instance, chapter 11, verse 12, where it mentions 30 pieces of silver, and we know that Judas betrayed Jesus for that amount. In chapter 12, verse 10, mentioned there, where it says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Chapter 13, verse 1, where the text speaks of a fountain that will be opened to cleanse people from sin and impurity. And in chapter 13, verse 7, where the word shepherd is used, but the word shepherd there is a common word meaning king. And if you know Mark well, you will know that in Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus quotes exactly word for word from Zechariah 13, verse 7, and applies it to himself as the shepherd and the sheep been scattered from the shepherd. So let's try and bring all this together by asking the question, who does Jesus think he is? I suggest the answer is quite clear from the way he enters Jerusalem on that donkey, that he thinks he's the king. And I think that is confirmed by the fact that what happens in Mark 11 also has echoes of Zechariah 14. Did you notice where Jesus chose to arrive from in Mark 11? The Mount of Olives. Look what it says in Zechariah 14 verse 4. Did you notice the title Jesus gives to himself, the Lord? And did you notice what, what does Jesus complain of having entered Jerusalem? He complains of commerce and trade in the temple courts. And what does he do in the temple? He throws out the merchants. And what does Zechariah 14 say? There will be no longer merchants in the house of the Lord Almighty. Here I think we have Mark pointing to a foreshadowing of Jesus' second coming. So what do we have? We are faced here with a man who is quite deliberately identifying himself with the king, the Lord, that Zechariah spoke of 400 years earlier. The one destined to be the sovereign ruler over all the nations. In fact, the one to be destined to be our king, whether we like it or not, whether we believe in him or not. Sure, it is a strange king that arrives on the donkey. But Jesus is a strange king in this sense, that he has come for the first time not to cause international violence, as his compatriots expected, but he has come to achieve cosmic reconciliation. He's come to open a fountain for the cleansing of sin, and hence the donkey of Zechariah 9. The shepherd of Israel has come not to strike, but to be stricken. He's come not to shed blood, but to be pierced himself. He's come not to antagonize the Gentile nations, but to bring those nations together in the kingdom of God. That's the mission, as Jesus understood it when he came that first time. So what about Zechariah 14 then? Had Jesus abandoned that second style of messianic kingdom? No, he had not at all. Again, go home and uh, 
look at Mark 11 in some detail. And notice what Jesus does in verse 11 after all the excitement had died down. He looked around at everything, he says. It says. Now, to me, there's something ominous about that statement. The king has come, but is he happy with what he finds? The clear answer is no. Jesus does see himself as the king foretold in Zechariah 9 and in Zechariah 14. He sees himself as the Lord of judgment. And if you study carefully the way Mark describes all that goes on the very next day, you will see that Jesus, well, everything that Jesus does the next day is coloured by the conviction that he is the Lord of judgment. There's so much going on in this little story of the triumphal entry and what happens next. What does all this mean? I think it means this. We can't just say that Jesus is just a prophet. We can't just say that Jesus is just a teacher, just a philosopher. No, no. He's claiming to be king. And therefore, on this Palm Sunday, we are confronted with two choices. We can call his bluff. We can challenge his claim. We can ignore him. That's, as it were, one choice. Or we can kneel at his feet and call him Lord. Amen.